Hey guys, thanks for tuning us in for this 26th episode of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests for this episode include the host of The Jeff Dwoskin Show, obviously Jeff Dwoskin. We'll also have author Jonathan Alter talking about his new book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter Alive. We'll also visit with actor, director, and producer Patrick Harney. Also producer Stacy Toy. And to wrap up the show, we will have the one and only Reverend Al Sharpton. If you would, please take the time to subscribe, drop a like, comment, rate the podcast, leave some feedback, and share with your friends. We, we love to visit with new folks, make new friends, and, and fellow podcasters alike as well. And uh, he's got a, a show that was, uh, well, custom-made for him, the Jeff Twaskin Show. Jeff on the line with us. And uh, first off, Jeff, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time to share with our podcast family. Hey, great to be here. Hello, everybody. Now, now, Jeff, where did when did the idea for podcasting first uh, first come up for you? Uh, the first time that came up was 2017. I bought all the equipment. I was ready to go. Pretty fancy on social media. I was going to do an entire social media based podcast. I was going to call it Viral Intentions, help people go viral with their tweets, and it was a clever take on the movie cool intentions i thought it was very clever bought everything had everything going and then it just sat on my desk for years and then when the covid hit earlier this year you know everyone i'm working from home all of a sudden i've got all this extra time on my hands i decided hey now is the time to to really focus on this podcast and then march 2020 i realized oh wow Bad time to start a podcast called Viral Intentions. <laughs> Timing's everything, especially in comedy, right? Timing is everything. So uh, I talked to uh, my brother, and he's like, just call it the Jeff Dwoskin Show. <laughs> and then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so I focus a little bit on social media, talk to comedians, actors, you know, comedy stuff, trends on social. So it's just kind of a a variety show of sorts. And then, you know, I do a little shtick up front, um, you know, and then read some tweets and trends from my hashtag roundup community that I do on, on Twitter. And yeah, that's it. So I've been having a good time. So today released episode 22. So there we go. <laughs> now, now what, what, what was the hardest thing for you to, uh, to get comfortable with in the podcasting? Um, in the beginning, I was I was nervous about interviewing people, and so you know, originally was keeping them short, you know, just real quick because I figured, oh, that's as as much as I could probably be interesting. And then slowly, they just started evolving. I just started getting more comfortable, kind of kibitzing and and um, joking around and you know, having a good time. I mean, it depends on the dynamic. Every person you talk to, it's a little different dynamic. But that was that was the the biggest mental hurdle. But I got I think I got over that relatively quickly once I just started relaxing. <laughs> now, now the, the and I know this as well. It, comedy and comedians, everybody expects them to be funny and to be on at all times. But sometimes that doesn't always come in uh, come together either, though, does it? 
No, you know, it depends what you're talking about. You know, it's a lot of times like I'll be on, um, I'll be talking to someone and they'll ask me a question and I, there's a business to comedy as well. So if you ask me about a heckler, I'm not going to give you a bit. I'm going to give you my, my real take and maybe a psychological point of view <laughs> on how to deal with it from a business point of view, not a, here's, I'm going to make you laugh while we're doing it type thing. You know, it's because I believe there's real answers to those questions and it just because I'm a comedian doesn't mean everything I'm going to say is, is funny. You know, even when I'm interviewing people, I'm not necessarily trying to be funny with them. You know, to me, when I'm interviewing them, I'm trying to just kind of use, use my time to get them to talk and, you know, get them to make it about them, you know? Now, who, who was your first comedy inspiration that, uh, or, or when was it that you knew that comedy was, uh, was the line for you going forward? Um, I loved a, a lot of comedians growing up, you know, um, Joan Rivers, Gary Shandling, Steve Martin, Rodney Dangerfield growing up. I, I, I saw a comedian, the amazing Jonathan at Mark Ridley's comedy castle and, it was, it was so many years before I would do comedy, but it was something that when I saw it and everything he was doing on stage, I think it was the first time I ever thought about that being me, not a magician, but the, uh, the, uh, the comedy part, but the, uh, and, you know, from there, you know, that, that, that sort of kind of sparked it. I think I, I don't remember a time frame or timing, you know, how that played into my personal timeline, but I do remember that was the first person I ever saw that kind of gave me that that drive. I, and, and I love to ask comedians this too. I mean, we, we always talk about the funny stuff, the things that work. What's uh, what's the one that sticks out for you as that 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 didn't go as planned? Maybe uh, hopefully not necessarily the whole flop, but maybe something you really anticipated, and then uh, you, you come through and it's just like boom! It just it, it bombed. Oh. Yeah, I've I've had plenty of bad experiences. I think everyone everyone <laughs> does. I, anyone who tells you they haven't is is lying. I mean, they may have not. Have, you know, the more they do it, they probably have less and less um, and closer to zero. But there's always uh, a time. You know, a lot of it's like a lot of it is just when you go on stage. Maybe your head's not in it. You know, there's there's certain things that you know you can you can tank. But I mean, there's. There's a couple, I'm, I'm having flashbacks right now, but the, there's a few times where you're on stage and just something right away doesn't connect and you just can't get them back. And, you know, as a comedian, when you're doing your time, you got to do your time. You know, if you're supposed to be up there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, you don't leave just because they don't like you. You have to stay. And that, that can be the most uh, painful experience ever. And, you know, you learn to survive it and get through it, but it's, it's something then you just dedicate yourself to making sure it doesn't happen again. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 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 is and is stand up comedy obviously along with uh, concerts of of any type uh, being closed off for now. Uh, some folks, I mean, artists, uh, singers, musicians have been doing the Facebook lives. I was actually talking to Carlos Mencia during the, the the pandemic, and he was like, you know, Facebook lives are are, are so hard because you don't hear the laughter. And it, it, it is it the laughter that maybe. Uh, sparks the excitement in you and, and keeps it going, makes it, uh, makes it run smoother for you. Is that why the, the Facebook lives are kind of a no-go? The energy of being there and watching 
and uh, watching the reactions live and hearing the reactions live. It's like live theater. I imagine live theater um, is similar in the sense that you feed off the energy of the audience. So if the energy of the audience isn't there or they're not reacting, it's hard to not react to that as well. And, you know, so that's, there is a certain energy that exists. And on Zoom or Facebook Live, when you don't have that, when you can't look at someone and see them laughing or smiling or, you know, you know, belly laughing, it's like you lose that and your brain just starts thinking, um, you know how like you're somewhere and you're like, oh my God, is my fly down? You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone's looking at me, is my fly down? You know, that, that weird feeling you got, you know, and like that would be the whole Facebook live. I imagine like just thinking that every time you're talking, like, are they laughing? Did they, did that work? You know, that kind of thing. So that's the closest if you have ever had that type of feeling or just something on my face or there's spinach in my teeth, you know, where you get that paranoid feeling that to me would be like the hundred percent of what you're thinking and feeling the whole time you're doing one of those live events without any real time feedback that you're used to. Now, now, since you're not able to be up on stage and, uh, and, you know, hear the laughter and it keeps you going now, if you're talking to folks just in regular time now, if, if you hear a laugh, does that spark you to like automatically throw a one liner after it? <laughs> um, no. Yeah. Well, sometimes it depends where I'm at. You know what I mean? <laughs> my, I mean my wife doesn't like when I do that in public, <laughs> you know, like you try to be funny in public, you know? But the, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do enjoy that. If I can make someone like if I'm at a restaurant, I can make the waitress or waiter laugh. I, I do enjoy that. And I will kind of smirk under, you know, and, and, and have a good time with that. But, you know, it embarrasses my family. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I do does that to my family. So I, I'm completely with you on that one, Jeff. Now, now tell us a little bit about uh, maybe a, a favorite special guest on the, on the episodes you've had so far. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I was, I love them all. I love them all. But the, uh, I had done an event a long time ago, um, about six years or so ago with Aaron Cummings, she's an actress, she was in Spartacus and she was in Troy 187 and Jackie, the joke man, Mark Ling from Howard Stern was there. And so we all did this show together to raise um, awareness and money for Mittens for Detroit, which is a Detroit charity. And so when I started doing the podcast, I started reaching out to people that I had worked with, you know, just to try and, you know, cause as a comedian, really any comedian, you're like, when you start out and you're working clubs and you're opening, you'll, you'll work with pretty, some famous big names right away because, you know, there's just always that, that opportunity to MC. They would, you know, they just want to throw you know, somebody to the wolves. So it's like, it's a great opportunity to meet people. And I've, I kind of stayed in touch with some of these people, not on a day-to-day basis or anything, but you know, with Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And and so I reached out to them and just kind of, um, I've done, I've done two interviews with Jackie, the joke man. I haven't released the second one yet. And I interviewed Aaron Cummings and I actually released that one today. That's available now. And I was just kind of reliving those and hearing those stories. I mean, the combination of the, of the, the two of them brought back some, some good memories of, uh, an, an event we did together where we made some change and, and the stories are great. And, 
you know, I, I really enjoy it. Like I, my, my whole idea with the podcast was I want to talk to people and hear them tell stories, you know, I interviewed this guy who lived with Groucho Marx for three years and he's telling stories about, you know, Bob Hope just coming over for lunch and stuff like that. And it's like, to me, like those are fascinating things. And I, I hope other people do as well, but it's like a whole combination of things. People that wrote big movies, people that acted in them, comedians that people know or can get to know. So that to me has, has been kind of the cool thing, but I, I think the combination of those series of, of interviews have been my favorite. And tell us a little bit about, uh, you're going to have to give me the full name of the hashtag. What, what what was that? Oh, hashtag roundup on Twitter. I, I created an app and I'm a digital guy and a social media digital guy. And so I created this app called hashtag roundup and it corresponds to a Twitter property also called hashtag roundup. And we do call and response hashtags. So what that means is, just like in comedy, there's you have a premise and then people can make jokes about a premise. Uh, call and response hashtags are like hashtag something scary in five words or hashtag kill a conversation or hashtag fake Scooby-Doo facts. You know, just something where you read the hashtag and you go, oh, I can write something to that hashtag. Right. And so it's their games and we do them every like 90 minutes. And if you have the app, it buzzes your phone and lets you know, hey, you know, um, a game is starting. And so people can go on Twitter and it helps people tweet things. You know, there are a lot of, I found that a lot of people who are on Twitter, they kind of avoid Twitter because like, I don't know what to tweet. And this gives you something to tweet. And then because you're using hashtags, you're part of this hashtag community because when people search on these things, they click on the hashtag. So if you and I don't follow each other, I still have a good chance of seeing your tweet. And then I can interact with you, follow you, and then, you know, you can just get to know certain people that way and build up your follower counts and your retweets and your likes as such. So I've been doing that for about five years now. And and for, for me, it's doing the podcast, the, the hashtag, that was something I, re- I really had to, to, to sit down and, and really learn and delve into to, to explain to myself. But to the uh, to the novice that's listening out there, what what is the significance of the hashtag? The hashtag itself is a marker. So it, it says I'm talking about this particular topic and. And so it lets people click on that hashtag and find people who are discussing that particular topic. And in our example, it's fun games. In other examples, it might be an artist puts out a song. So you see the hashtag, the name of the song trending, or people are watching The Walking Dead and hashtag The Walking Dead are trending. And so you click on the hashtag The Walking Dead and you're like, oh, here's a whole conversation people are talking about the show so that the hashtag itself is a marker that lets you find quickly just by clicking on that hashtag other people using the hashtag and what's the most ridiculous use of a hashtag that you've seen <laughs> i don't believe there is a ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> there's no ridiculousness to them huh no it's it's, uh, it's very serious fun stuff <laughs> now, now, Jeffrey, I, I want to make sure and uh, and let all of our listeners know uh, more about the podcast. When uh, when new episodes? I know the new one is up today. Uh, is it each Monday? Is that how that runs? Yeah, Mondays at noon. Uh, I release new episodes, and 
Yeah, it's uh, weekly. And yeah, the Jeff DeWaskin show. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, I appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing some time on the podcast here. Uh, looking forward to checking out your latest episode. And uh, hopefully we can reconnect real soon, my friend. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone. Up next is going to be author and political correspondent Jonathan Alter talking about his latest work, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. My pleasure. Now, now, Jonathan, uh, I think especially right now, uh, taking a look at uh, a kind, genuine man, one of the uh, a great person and president, Jimmy Carter. What, especially in the times we're living in, Jonathan, what do you think we could pick most from him to uh, to insert into our lives today? That's a, that's a great question, Cameron. I would say honesty, confidence, seriousness of purpose. Uh, and a, a, an intelligence, a willingness to plan uh, for bad times, which they they did when Carter created FEMA. Uh, but just in the short term, um, you know, this this uh, might sound uh, rather jarring to you, but in, in 1978, um, Jimmy Carter developed a painful case of hemorrhoids. And his aide said, well, let's just put out a statement saying, you know, you're, you're in, the president is indisposed or something vague. And Carter said, no, you know, you have to be honest about these things because you can really cause us problems abroad if people wonder why the president, you know, not at work and what's really going on. And so even though it was very embarrassing, they put out a statement saying the president had hemorrhoids. So compare that to today. That's very true. And and the work that he's done, uh, even aside from politics, in his day-to-day life, trying to make a difference in other people's lives, you you can't quantify the lives that he's touched uh, by his life as well. That's right. Those lives that he touched and a lot of very far-sighted things he did as president. So I describe him as a political and maybe stylistic failure as president. My book is Warts and All, but a substantive and far-sighted success, and I think an inspiring one in this in this time uh, of trials that we're in right now. His um, example is inspirational, and certainly in writing this book over the last five years, it really gave me a break from uh, from Trump. I remember I would go back to the. Uh, the Carter papers and the papers reading about him and then, of course, interviewing him many times as I did and sort of wiped away the toxins of Trump. So I almost think of him uh, reading my book as kind of like uh, the food uh, for the body politics, for people who um, want to know that we can have a president with such a decency and compassion. And, and for you, what was what was the big aha moment in in the the the, the preparation, the reading of books, and, and and talking to to individuals who know Carter best? What what was there? Uh, there's probably more than one, but is there one aha moment that really sticks out to you? I think there are a couple. One was um, when I realized just what an unbelievable virtuoso performance he pulled off at Camp David. Uh, bringing peace to Israel and Egypt, and, and uh, they haven't fired a shot in anger. It's the most enduring peace treaty of the post-war period. And I realized, you know, 
this guy could pull that off. There must be something more to him than the lazy shorthand, you know, bad president, great ex-president. But the truth has to be more complicated than that. And then when I found out that if he had been reelected, he would have addressed climate change in the second half of his uh, in the second term. That was when I was really hooked on, on trying to write what, you know, turned out it's the first uh, full-length biography of Jimmy Carter. And what was it? How was he in the interviews? Was he was he really open and honest, just kind of like you would expect from him? Or uh, and how candid was he with you? He's super candid, you know, and it's gotten him in trouble. Uh, and, and, you know, it's attributed to his uh, his problems when he was president, and some of his problems as a former president. Because when they ask him what he thinks of other presidents, he answers honestly. So, yeah, I mean, I interviewed him. 12 times and, uh, you know, built a Habitat for Humanity house with him in Memphis and, uh, uh, you know, had seven meals with him. Um, he was unfailingly uh, gracious and honest. Uh, just to give you one example, um, in 1980, on the eve of the Democratic Convention, where he was nominated just barely over Ted Kennedy, and he went on to lose that year to Reagan. Dan Rather interviewed him, and he asked him to grade himself. And Carter foolishly agreed to give himself grades. Remember, we all know that Trump just gives himself A's and A-pluses, right? <laughs> uh, Carter, um, in a few areas, he gave himself a B, a C-plus, a B-minus, you know. And Rather was, when I interviewed Dan Rather about it, he was just stunned, you know, that he would answer this question that way. And then when I asked Carter, well, what, you know, what do you think of those grades that you gave Dan Rather 40 years ago? And he said, well, I think it's probably about right, you know. Now, in other areas, he gave himself better grades, but, uh, you know, in foreign policy, he gave himself high marks, and he was right, because his foreign policy was historic in many ways. And, you know, domestically, of course, he was battled with a bad economy that really wasn't his fault, uh, and he appointed Paul Volcker, who ended up ending inflation, uh, but he jacked up interest rates right before the election, which hurt Carter a lot, and then by the time his anti-inflation policy kicked in, Reagan was already president, Reagan benefited from it, and then, of course, there was the Iran hostage crisis, but that, after the election, that ended well, also, um, we got all the hostages back safely, but it did him a lot of... Uh, Damage, but you know, I have to say that in, in many ways, I was more interested. No, I should say more interested. I was equally interested, in Cameron, in his earlier life, and because he led this kind of epic American life, you know, barefoot boy, no running water, no electricity, uh, and then he's uh, he's in the Navy, he's writing these really steamy love letters to his wife Rosalind, and. Um, you know, like letters we've never seen before between uh, uh, President and First Lady, uh, you know, that are in my book. And then Jim Crow South, just how rough it was. Kind of white terrorism in, in uh, Southwest Georgia, where, where he's from. And so this, this was a kind of a roller coaster life almost out of a novel that Jimmy Carter led that 
Abby really hooked from a pretty early point in my research. And again, the the book, His Very Best, uh, Jimmy Carter, A Life by Jonathan Alter. Jonathan, I do want to make sure and let our listeners know not only where they can find more information about the book, but uh, other things that you're working on as well. Absolutely. There's, you know, there's o- Oklahoma is in the book. Uh, 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 actually, uh, David Boren is in the book. It uh, relates to natural gas. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot in it. <laughs> it's a long book, but I'm told it reads pretty well. And uh, Jonathan, it's been great to visit with you this morning. Looking forward to spending some more time with the book myself and hope you have a great week, my friend. Thanks very much, Ken. All right, guys, our next special guest is uh, actor, producer. Well, he does, uh, I think he wears a lot of different hats is is what happens. We've got uh, Patrick Harney on the line. And uh, first off, Patrick, thanks so much for, for being on the podcast today. Yeah, man, thanks for taking the time to have me on. Now, now, Patrick, uh, if folks uh, don't recognize the name, tell us, uh, tell our listeners just a little bit uh, backstory where they may have seen you, and and also, and I know there's some uh, you, you have a little horror in your blood as, as well too. And this is October, so we got to talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, people probably haven't seen a whole lot of me yet because um, I've I'm relatively new, I guess, in the grand scheme of of most film careers i'm relatively new in the in the industry but um but yeah no i've i've been acting since i was 13 years old and you know i i mean i started doing musical theater growing up and um you know reached over to the film to the film aisle and uh you know got got stuck in in love with that and um yeah so i've been doing that ever since and I've actually got a, you know, speaking of the horror thing, I actually just shot a, a short film called Project Horror with, um, you know, and it, it's a it's a really really cool story. I, I can't say a whole lot about it, but the, the teaser trailer just went up on on YouTube um, just just the other day. So that is definitely something to check out. Um, it kind of gives an idea of, uh, you know, uh, obviously something terrible has happened, and my character as well as another character go in to try and figure, uh, figure out exactly what went down. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really, really intense, cool, uh, twist to a horror film. And and I'm excited for that to come out. Now, when you talk about a a, a horror film short, I mean, what's, what's the biggest challenge in, in putting that out? Well, um, one, I think it's all in the writing. Um, you know, the, so Rob E, he's our, he's our director and our creator. He, uh, he wrote the the script and it's a really, really cool twist. I mean, it has horror elements to it, but it's got a lot of, um, a lot of thriller aspects to it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the first like true horror film, I guess you could say that I've been in. And, uh, yeah, it's it, it was a really cool experience, and it was cool to kind of see the story unfold in front of my eyes. And um, yeah, yeah, and I'm really blessed to be a part of it. And I know that you're doing uh, producing and in uh, directing and all that as well. And what's what's the behind the scenes? I mean, you know, you you, you see deadlines, you see, hey, we're going to be filming now. But what's the process to even get to the, the the possibility of a of a scheduled date to film? it's a very long process. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot to it. And there's a lot of, a lot of people involved. 
Um, yeah, I'm actually acting and producing on a film called Lacquer 42 that, that we're hoping to film in quarter two of next year. Um, right now we're in the process of trying to secure our, our, our financing and our, and our budget. Um, you know, we've, we've been trying to put some pieces in place that can help us do that and, um, you know, can help us, I mean, you know, the film's got to sell. So, um, you know, but, but at the same time, I will say we've been very, very, specific as to um uh, you know making sure what what cards we put on the table when and uh and who we want to get involved you know we, we don't just want to get anybody just to try and sell the film that you know that's not really what we're about we're about trying to make sure that if you know if we can get a recognizable face and you know then awesome but they have to fit the character and they have to they have to bring um they have to bring something to the character that we think would really really work rather than just having you know a familiar face just to have one you know, you know what i mean so yeah but th- there's a lot to it there's a lot of a lot of meetings um which have all been virtual uh which can sometimes be kind of a pain but sometimes nice you know, depending on schedules, um, and also getting department heads established and getting, um, you know, making sure all the legal stuff is, is, is in order. And then also with all the COVID stuff added on top of it, that, you know, that's going to be another layer of, of paperwork and, you know, and all that stuff that, that we'll have to keep track of. So, um, but I mean, you know, we, we have a great team so far and we have people in place that, will be able to, you know, handle all that type of stuff. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not doing everything. Jeff Cap, our director, he's not doing everything. You know, we're all kind of, um, you know, spreading the the workload, if you will, and um, and making sure that that we can get the best product, uh, you know, out there as best we can. So. Now, another thing along those lines, you know, we've we've seen an uptick in in movies in the state of Oklahoma just because there's some there's some kick, not necessarily kickback, but you understand there's it's advantageous to to films to come to Oklahoma. Now, whenever you're choosing a location to to, to film in, I mean, is is cost of living or or maybe tax breaks is that is that stuff that's really thought of at 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 that point in the in the filmmaking process most definitely yeah so so all of so i live in michigan and um and that's actually where we we've been looking to film at and the biggest thing though is you know we're, we're keeping our eyes open to looking into maybe tennessee um, you know, because they have great tax tax incentives and tax breaks there for film. Um, but there are obviously requirements, you know, it has to be able to um, supply jobs to the locals there, wherever you're filming. But, you know, but, but the biggest thing for us is, you know, say we want to film in Tennessee or say we want to film in Canada or whatever. Um, we have to look at the cost of, okay, well, how much is it going to be to, fly or drive everybody to you know to the town that we're filming in or whatever how much is it going to be to board everybody how much is it going to be for food there um you know all of that stuff so that all gets gets taken into account you know because i i mean on a film there's a lot of people involved and so there's a lot of people that end up on set so uh so you have to be able to get everybody there and you have to be able to cover all that you know you can't ask somebody to hey you know, would you be willing to come act in this project and you get so-and-so, you know, dollar amount per day, but you have to cover the cost of travel there and you have to cover the cost of hotel and food. Like, you know, that's, that's not cool. And we don't want to do that. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that everybody's taken care of and, 
you know, the, you know, those are all just things that we have to weigh in. And, you know, if it's cheaper for us to, um, to film in Michigan, then we'll film in Michigan. If it's cheaper in Tennessee, then we'll film in Tennessee. You know, it's, it's all, it's all a numbers game. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's all about the numbers. There you go. So are you a, are, are you a Wolverine or a Spartan? Ooh, well, <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm actually a fighting Irish supporter. Um, I grew up a Notre Dame fan. However, I went to Michigan state, so I'm biased to that. So it's, so if, if you had, if, if you maybe choose between U of M and MSU, I choose MSU all day long. But if, you know, if, if you throw Notre Dame involved in there, then I'm going to, you know, then I'm going to pick Notre Dame. So. That's funny. I was I when, when you said you were you were kind of stumbling there for me. I was like, he can't be saying Ohio State. Oh gosh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I would rather get shot in the foot than support Ohio State. <laughs> yeah, no, man, I can't do that. Can't do it. Now, Patrick, where you talked about doing musical theater and uh, then falling in love with production? Were there were there any entertainers that that necessarily uh, lit the fire in you, if you will? Yeah, I was actually growing up. I was a huge Jerry Lewis fan. Um, My my dad introduced me to his work, him and Dean Martin's Colgate Comedy Hour, um, back when I was in middle school. And so, you know, watching them perform, watching them be able to command a crowd, and um, you know, and be able to have the stage presence that they had was was really inspiring to me. And then when I started watching more film, like really studying it. Um, then I, you know, I was, I've, I've been really big into Matthew McConaughey's work. I, you know, I like his work. I like Denzel Washington's work a lot. Um, you know, Jack Nicholson, Leo, you know, I mean, uh, all of those guys, they, I, I like the layers that they bring to their characters and, and you can tell that they're just professionals. You know what I mean? Like they, there's a, there's a different level to them um, artistically than, than most actors that you see, I feel like, and, um, you know, and hopefully I, you know, I can get to that point at, you know, someday. <laughs> that's, that's what we've all got to strive for is someday, uh, make it what we, uh, the, the goals that we have now, do you set specific in the, in, on the acting side of things, do you set specific goals for yourself each year? I do. Yeah. Um, <sighs> For me, it, it's I don't necessarily like sit down at the beginning of the year and say, "All right, this year I'm going to accomplish this." But um, my biggest thing is I want to I always want to get better as a student um, for one, but also I want every project and every character that I take on to be either you know uh, more of a challenge, uh, bigger, whatever than the than the previous one. Um, you know, I, am always wanting to take a step forward in my career rather than a, take a step back or a sidestep. Um, you know, my, my biggest thing is, is trying to get to a point. I mean, I, I would be lying if I, if I didn't say that I want to be, you know, one of the most sought out actors in the industry at some point, um, because obviously I do, but it's not because of any fame or stardom or anything that I want. It's because that means I'll, I'll be able to get to work with the best that there is. And that's a huge goal of mine is to be able to be at least, uh, you know, go toe to toe with some of the greats and hopefully, you know, hold my own at least. So 
Now, in, in, in acting, when, when somebody hands you a script, what is what is the emotion that you fear the most? That I fear the most? In, in a script. Who? Um, well, I guess in regards to the character, I don't really fear anything. Um, just because, you know, being able to dive into somebody else's mind is a, is a really interesting and intriguing thing for me. And it's a very exciting thing for me. Um, something that I, I guess I get anxious. Um, you know, if I, if I have to do something like that, that I've never done before, or if I have, um, you know, a scene that's incredibly emotional, you know, I get anxious for those scenes because those are, you know, I, I know that'll take a, a big emotional toll, but I don't really get scared of anything. I guess, I guess, I guess, not necessarily a fear, but more of an annoyance. It's like bad writing. I, I can't, I can't stand bad writing and I haven't really seen a whole lot of it, but I have seen some of it. Um, and it's just, you know, if, if something's written poorly or a character, you know, if the dialogue is just not natural and it seems very forced, then I'll, I'll just, I'll just stop reading I'll, and I'll just put it down. I, cause I mean, if it's, you know, if it's something that I don't, if it's, yeah, I don't know. And I, I guess that that's pretty much my biggest thing is, is bad writing is, you know, or, um, or a very shallow character in terms of like not having much of a character arc or anything like that. That's just, yeah. I, yeah. I just don't really get into that much. Now, Patrick, if folks want to find out uh, more information about, uh, about, about the film, also uh, all the other things that you're working uh, social media wise, where can folks uh, keep up with you? Yes, you can find me on IMDb. Um, I'm the first Patrick Carney that there is, and you'll see my ugly mug right there. Um, and then also you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at, at pharns194, so at pharns194, and then on Facebook at official pharny. Um, yeah, that's that, that's pretty much where you can keep keep up with my stuff. I mean, I usually use Facebook and, and Instagram mo- mostly. I, I don't really use Twitter all that much, but... Um, but even now I try to stay off of Facebook as much as I can just <laughs> I know, because of right? how, how insane everybody is. So <laughs> yeah, now do you, do you think that, uh, the, the, the stuff that is, um, the, the projects that are going to be put out a- after COVID, uh, a- how, um, how over the top do you think maybe some of the directors may want to go with, uh, finally being able to get back in there and, uh, and turn some work out? Well, you know, I think obviously the whole landscape of the film industry will be different because of because of COVID. Um, you know, there's many uh, pro- safety protocols and things in place that you know everybody has to follow. But I I think though, I mean, I have been on set where I have been on set since COVID, and I've been able to see some of those protocols and everything and. And, you know, as long as everybody's cautious and as long as everybody is, um, you know, considerate of each other, then it, you know, every, everything usually works out fine. And, and it's, I think it'll be one of those things where, you know, you'll be watching the movie and you won't even realize, you know, that it was filmed during a COVID thing, you know, because there's been so much testing and temperatures taken, waivers signed, all that stuff beforehand. So um, hopefully, you know, ho- what I'm, worried about is is the movie theater business dying out because you know because with all these movies that are pushing back and pushing back and pushing back 
you know, theaters are going to die out. And, and I would hate to see that, um, you know, because they're already struggling really hard. And so if you're not giving them any content to the show, then, you know, there, there goes that business. So, yeah, that's tough. That's right. That's right. Well, Patrick, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the program today. Hopefully uh, we can catch up again real soon. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. All right, guys, got uh, a movie we're going to talk about and uh, a little bit of life uh, today. We're going to talk with uh, Stacy Coy about the movie 100 Acres of Hell. And uh, first off, Stacy, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, now, first off, let's let, let's talk about the movie and uh, tell your involvement in the movie, kind of the uh, the, the whole story behind it, and uh, how have you been blown away by uh, the reception, if you will? Yes, it, um, absolutely was because five years ago um, I was in a, a transition in my life. I had just gotten out of live TV news pro- uh, broadcasting. I was directing America's highest rated local newscast in the country. You know, going and doing like the uh, London 2012 Olympics, um, things like of that nature. And I was chosen by one of the corporate, uh, in fact, the engineer who invented the automation program for control rooms um, in the United States and helped basically troubleshoot and perfect the automation systems across the United States. So I knew that I had just perfected my replacement because control rooms were going from like 12 people down to two and now even one. Um, so five years ago I I made this transition. So I didn't, you know, I was in a, a phase and I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I got hired on this film, uh, to do PR actually. And, uh, I just have a natural curiosity and I ask a lot of questions and my questions actually led to, you know, some things being found up behind scenes of other people doing some shady things. And so they were let go. Um, and a week on my very first film set, they asked me to be uh, the production manager, which is basically in charge of everything behind the scenes. And I'm like, you guys know that this isn't like I've never I did my first week on set. And they're like, I know, but, you know, we're going to help guide you. And we think that you could do this. And so I took the opportunity because I figured, you know, if I suck at it, then I, this isn't for me, but at least I can give it a shot. Um, and I had really good professionals, um, on my side, like Ernie O'Donnell from clerk. So, I mean, he'd been in the industry for over 25 years, you know, WWE superstar Gene Smitsky. Um, obviously like, I mean, everybody in there was just so wonderful. Um, so yeah, five years later, um, it's out now. It came out last October. It's on like Amazon prime, Voodoo, iTunes, Google play on demand. Um, it's like on 32 platforms right now. And it's gotten such a huge buzz last year, but even more of a buzz this year because it's getting ready for Halloween. Um, and it also stars, like, the Exorcist um, star Eileen Dietz, where she was, like, uh, Linda Blair's replacement for the pea soup scenes um, and all those kind of things. So, like, we have some throwbacks to slashers. We have, like, Samu in Oahe and Off and Oahe Jr., who are, you know, they're the head shrinkers uh, and sold out Madison Square Garden for WWE. And there's some epic scenes in there for wrestling fans. Um, but it's, you know, basically about fighting the, finding the fight in yourself as well um, as being a horror film. So I kind of just took the opportunity and, yeah, I, I ran with it. So I'm really happy with the outcome. And, and you talked about uh, finding the fight inside of yourself. And, and, and this this brings true on, on a personal level for you as well. Of course. Absolutely. Um, so... I grew up on a farm um, in the country, a small town, you know, rural, you know, we didn't have much, but we didn't want for anything. Um, 
you know, and so my, my father instilled in me a lot of different morals. He planted the seeds, if you will. Um, and so I knew, like they had said that they couldn't afford to afford me all of these opportunities. So I had to figure out different ways how to be able to travel and see the world and do different things. So that was to me through education and through um, different programs. And so going away to college, um, I got into uh, Elizabethtown College and during that whole time of being in high school and going into college, um, nobody really knew this, but, um, you know, I had ovarian cysts really bad. So I was, was given opioids like Vicodin and Percocet and Lorisette and all those. Um, and so by the time I was at Oxford University, the number one school in the world, I was taking between 70 and 100 Vicodin a day and still making like the dean's list. Um, so um, at the end of this month, I'll be clean from that for 17 years, uh, like that, and cocaine and all the hard drugs, um, which I'm excited about. But um, nine years ago, my husband, um, I ended up, we had two kids. I got married. My husband was in the Navy. Um, and when he came home from serving, uh, he suffered with PTSD and depression. Um, and on Veterans Day in 2011, he actually passed away from an accidental heroin overdose. Um, so I, I got to see, I guess, both sides of the coin, if you will. And it kind of was like a jarring, uh, life lesson to learn that you can't, you have to want to save yourself too. Like you can't save everybody. Um, but I still wanted to make something good come from something bad. So I found the person who shot my husband up because he had never been like a heroin addict before. So he had somebody else do it. Um, and so I reached out to him and I actually met up with him and, uh, at that point he was shooting about 50 plus bags a day of heroin himself. Um, and he had just gotten out of prison for something else. And so I said, listen, I, I'll help you to get sober. And I said, if you can become the husband to your wife and the father to your two sons that my husband can no longer be, I'll help you because I've been here. Like nobody, you know, I was on top of the world back at Oxford and, and, you know, the thing is, is it was the pre-opioid epidemic. So when I went and asked for help, it was like they didn't know what to do with me because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't heroin and it wasn't underage drinking. It was I had legit prescriptions for every single, even though I was taking that month, like that much of it. I had docked all of these doctors. I mean, again, pre-opioid epidemic, I'm at the best school in the world making, you know, really great grades. So like, what? yeah, just keep giving her whatever she needs. You know what I mean? So it's like. And then when I asked for help, everything kind of got pulled out from underneath me because now I'm a drug, I'm a druggie and I'm going to be a failure and, you know, and, and dealing with depression and withdrawal and going through all of that. So I and I and I walked in, you know, meeting with this guy who essentially killed my husband. Um, you know, it, it was OK if he was going to tell me to go, you know, to hell if I wanted to, you know, or whatever. Um, I at least wanted to know that I tried. Um, but at the end of the day, it's been nine years now since my husband passed um, next month, and he'll be clean nine years at the end of this year. The other guy, he got his family back. He has a very successful business right now, and right now he's the only one left alive. Um, all of the rest of his friends have died from addiction. Um, and so, you know, over the last 17 years, um, I've not only been able to prove that the only thing more powerful than depression and addiction is love and forgiveness, but I was able to prove that it sustained itself because I didn't hold his hand. All he did was ask me for, you know, guidance. And I mean, I would give him, you know, like minutes on his cell phone so he could call his kids or call me, um, you know, and, and give him a Bible um, and pick him up and take him to work or take him to lunch or something like that. Like I never gave him money, but I just, you know, helped him like spiritually and, and trying to like 
like my father did for me, plant different seeds and help to see a different perspective because I think life's all about perception and reaction. And if you have a different perception, you're going to have a different reaction. Um, so you've got to take the time to kind of see that. And so I, I was able to make something good come from something bad and honor my husband in a way of giving a life back to somebody else. And that to me was like the biggest full circle moment and it continues to go on and I'm super proud of him right now. Um, but you know, in second Corinthians, it says that God sometimes chooses people to suffer. So they in turn can help others who suffer. And then together you share in that comfort, you know, the way that God had comforted us. So, um, you know, I'm a firm believer in that because then usually at the end of that sentence, if I'm in a good conversation, I'll be like, and if that's not true, then why am I here talking to you right now? You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) Now for for you, as it comes full circle and and you're seeing a change in somebody's else's life i mean does has that made some of the pain even more bearable as you look back at it um i mean of course you know like i i miss my husband dearly um and and of course our children do too um you know i never remarried or anything like that but our kids are now uh you know 16 and 14 and we've been the three amigos like the the entire time so you know, they know the whole story. I've been very honest with them, especially in today's like world with every, everything is so like accessible drug wise, like, and it's at a younger age and everyone has cell phones and it's insane the amount of stuff. So I make it very open and honest, you know, with my children because I, I want them to learn from both my side and their father's side and, and to know that like you can't mess with it. And so my, my, I've, I've overheard my kids, you know, telling other people about, you know, I lost my dad this way and, you know, and, and my mom used to be like this too, but now, you know, she came back and, and she was able to do this and this, and now she's on the Grammys red carpet. And, you know, like, and it's, it's really inspiring for me to know that I was able, cause people at one point were just pointing at me saying, I'm a failure. I'm a drug addict. I'm not going to be anything anymore. And, and everything I worked so hard for was, was just gone and ripped away. And like I hit rock bottom and I hit it hard, but I needed that to happen in my life. Cause it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have learned or have gotten woken up otherwise, if that makes sense. Like I needed the crap kicked out of me. I really did. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. And if I had to go back and live it, I would do it the exact same way because it made me who I am right now. And I'm really proud of, you know, the person that I did become because I could do it now, you know, without drugs. So you were, you were talking about uh, being able to share the stories with, with your kids. I mean, do you think that, uh, that, that could have made a difference? I, I mean, the, my generation, my parents and, and probably your parents as well, drugs wasn't something you really talked about. And do you think that maybe the talking about it takes the stigma off of it a little bit? Honestly, it does, because it wasn't until I did have a problem and I went to my father that I found out because my father um, has gotten hurt at work and he has degenerative disc disease. So he has five bad discs in his back and he broke a shoulder in his arm. And, and so he was hurting it. And so he was one of the first people in the 90s on Oxycontin. Um, so he knew the withdrawal of coming off of something just as bad. And, and so it was him. And I mean, honestly, it was really only him. The whole world literally like turned their back on me at one point in time. But my father stayed with me because he knew that it was possible to get over with. And then in him sharing in his, you know, openness, which I didn't know prior to that, that inspired me and showed me that I was going to be able to do it too, because he told me the same blood that runs through my veins runs through yours. And I'm just like, you know, again, it's about, it's about the way you think and the way you see things. And, you know, sometimes it's like that fake it till you make it. 
So you just got to like, if you've got nothing to hold on to, you just got to make something, you know what I mean? And if it's just like a metaphor like that, or, you know, the one thing is always like, you know, the tiny acorn was, you know, turned into the mighty oak because it stood its ground, like stupid stuff like that. But I literally have an acorn at my desk at every place that I have a desk at, um, just to remind me of like, you know, the small things and, and how important, you know, those little things are and stuff. And so it's about planting seeds and, and having a different perspective. And again, uh, don't want to uh, to miss out and, and let our listeners know where they can find more information about the movie and also uh, follow you social media and website as well. Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> on 100 Acres of Hell, you can go 100 Acres of Hell movie. It's on Facebook, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Um, my, our production company that I uh, run with my business partner, Mark Denenbaum Jr., is 258 Studios, and that is the number 258studios.com, or all spelled out, 258 Studios on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find me personally at Stacey, S-T-A-C-E-Y-T-O-Y, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And don't forget the E, or else it goes to my other cousin, and I probably won't see it for about six or eight months. <laughs> there you go. Well, well Stacy, it has been great. Great to get to know you and to, to, to learn more about the film. Hopefully we can catch up again. I'd, I'd love to have you back on again real soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Our next guest is going to be the Reverend Al Sharpton. We'll be visiting about his new book, Rise Up. First off, Reverend Sharpton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, now, Reverend. First off, uh, man, life you've you've gone through the civil rights uh, movement and, and and seen obviously some progressions, but but are we seeing it kind of fall back a little bit right now? I think we are seeing a fall back. That is why I named the book uh, "Rise Up: Confronting a Country at the Crossroads." I think when we saw from my childhood when Martin Luther King and others were out there. And I joined the movement in the North because I was raised in New York, born and raised there. Uh, And the fight for equal rights uh, for blacks, the fight for women, uh, the fight for LGBTQ, the fight for uh, those that were of Latino uh, 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 descent, uh, all of that making progress all the way to the Obama administration. And then under the Trump administration the last three years, We've seen a lot of that go into regression. Uh, police reform suspended basically the consent decrees in many cities that had shown a pattern of police abuse, uh, removing the Justice Department suing on voting rights impediments, the fight to revoke uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the backing up of, of standing up for LGBTQ rights, uh, outright uh, gender inequality uh, efforts, and now the possibility of having a Supreme Court that may uh, take uh, down certain aspects of Roe versus Wade. So we're at a crossroads. We, are in our lifetime, could not see it more graphic than the administration that went out and the road it was going, even though I don't think it all the way got us there, but it was headed that way, and the road of this administration. And I challenge people to rise up and choose bringing this country up toward the, the, the road that we were on and to protect those gains that we made and keep going down that road to have more gains. And I try to show in the book how everybody can play a part. Everyone can't lead marches like I do or be in media, but everybody can do something. And I give all kinds of ways that that can be done. 
And, and Reverend, that's uh, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about. How how do we get involved to make a difference uh, beyond political lines? No matter which side you stand on, I mean, we can all make a difference, can't we? All of us can make a difference. One, you can start by registering and voting and making sure you are not one that is purged. Then you can start with just the people in your household. You don't have to call a rally in the neighborhood. Start. The people in your household, are they registered to vote? Do you talk to them about the issue? Is that something you go over during breakfast or, or dinner? Then the people on your block. And then little by little, you can influence people at your workplace, people in your church, people in your bingo lodge. People can just touch people. We can talk to people in our circle. We uh, tweet them. We text them on the latest show on television or the latest movie that we saw uh, in the pandemic sitting up at home. Why can't we talk to them about what affects our lives? So everybody can do something. And I tried to demonstrate how and the significance of doing it now. We've never been at this point in history and we need to all weigh in. That's right. And, uh, and Reverend, how's, how amazed and blessed do you, do you feel to, to be able to maybe lead a charge for a rise and, and see the differences and the changes uh, that, have, that you've been able to be a part of over, over the, the, the span of your life so far? I think uh, uh, if, if I understand your question, you're saying how I've been able to stay in the movement? Yes, sir. I think because... You know, Mark Twain said something that really impacted me. He said that the two most important moments in life is the moment you were born and the moment you find out why you were born. Uh, when I was a young kid, I started preaching in the Pentecostal church, the Church of God in Christ. By the time I was 12, I became intrigued with uh, watching the civil rights movement on television there in Brooklyn. My mother was born and raised in the South. And she was concerned I was going to leave the church. I was boy preacher and gotten a, known as that. And she was afraid I would leave the church. She brought me to uh, our bishop, and our bishop brought me to Reverend William Jones uh, and Reverend Jesse Jackson, who were uh, about twice my age or more at that time, and uh, said, uh, this young man's a boy preacher. They said, yeah, we've heard him. We've heard him on the radio. He says, we don't want to leave the church, but he wants to be involved. And they said, oh, no, we are church-based. And they mentored me. And when I started the picket lines with my youth department, they made me youth director of the chapter of the organization in New York. It was like putting a password in your computer. Everything lit up. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. I did not want a ministry of passion of big cathedral. I wanted to be out there helping people, organizing people. And I think that that is why I've stayed in it all my life. That is me. It's not a career choice. There's no way I would have known at 13 years old that it would lead to me uh, having access to the first black president. We didn't even imagine there would be a black uh, president when I was 13, uh, I, uh, that I would have a television show on MSNBC. There was no MSNBC when I was 13. It was not a career move. It was answering the call on your life. And guess what? Everybody listening to us has one on their life. And if you find it, you will find inner peace even amidst turmoil. Doesn't mean you won't have trouble. It just means you'll get through the trouble. That's right. Now, Al, if uh, if folks want to find out more information uh, about the book and, and all of the works that you're doing, uh, where can they find that information, sir? They can go to www.alshoptonbooks.com and uh, they can find out all about the book and they can 
get the books anywhere uh, books are sold, or they can go to nationalactionnetwork.net. That's my civil rights organization and be up to date daily on what we're doing, where we're doing it. And if they want to, they can be part of it. All right. Well, Reverend Al Sharpton, great to visit with you this morning. I I hope you have a great rest of your week and uh, looking forward to spending some more time with the book myself, sir. All right. Thank you very much for helping us on. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, question, or anything else you'd like to know, find me on Instagram, Twitter, and on my Facebook page at GQ with Cam. Also, if you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, feel free to click on the support tab and follow the instructions. Also, if you have a special guest idea, send me an email, Cameron at KWHW.com. We'll be back with episode 27 coming up tomorrow.